whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to the second season of Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Thanks, Kieran. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Matthew Boyle. I am professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago, and I work on the philosophy of mind, particularly some issues about self-knowledge, knowing your own mind, and also some questions about what it might mean to say that human beings are rational animals, as a long tradition has said. And I also do some work in the history of philosophy, particularly on the German philosopher Immanuel Kant. So for listeners who don't know this, I, Matt and I have known each other for a long time. We overlapped for uh, a number of years, I'm not sure how many actually we overlapped at the University of Pittsburgh, which was my first job. So it's especially nice to have you as a guest on the podcast and especially nice to ask you some probing questions about your temperament and fears. So I always start with a, a question from Iris Murdoch, who begins the podcast telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but who also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So. Does your temperament influence your philosophy? And if so, how? Yes, I, I like this question. I feel sympathetic with the spirit of it. I, I, it makes me wonder whether Iris Murdoch held a view I call the shattered globe theory of philosophy. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you. No. But the shattered globe theory is that originally the human mind was one beautiful, transparent globe of glass. And in that glass was contained all philosophical knowledge. And then one day someone dropped it and it shattered. And we, uh, those of us who are called to do philosophy, are the fragments trying to reassemble ourselves. And the theory has two consequences, um, one of which is that we're not really rivals, I guess, in philosophy, except insofar as we exaggerate what each of us has to contribute, right? Uh, each of us has a little bit of the shattered truth. And uh, the other is that you can learn something about yourself from the particular bit that you find yourself compulsively trying to get across. So I, so I sympathize with this idea that my temperament should be exhibited in the little bit of the truth that I try to express. I mean, uh, I, to, so to, to come to the question, I guess I do, I suppose that the thing that seems characteristic of me throughout my career has been uh, a desire to kind of stand up for the understanding that each of us has of our own lives from within, so to speak, an understanding of our own, why we do things, why we think what we think, why we feel as we do, an understanding that each of us is able to give simply by reflecting on the matter and articulating what we already in some sense know. And I think of that as a view that stands in at least apparent opposition to another view that some philosophers are attracted to, which to caricature it says something like that, that human beings are a complicated clockwork and that perhaps we don't understand the mechanism fully yet, but eventually one day we will. And 
whatever the mechanism might be, it's not one that each of us should expect to have insight into just by sitting in an armchair and reflecting. Um, it's rather something that we should wait for uh, adequately equipped scientists to work out and bring to bear. So I don't know how seriously you, you mean the, the shattered globe theory, but it does raise a question about whether the philosophers you just described and whose views you're critical of fall under it. So, I mean, it, on the shattered globe theory, there's some fragment of the globe that they are genuinely catching on to. It's just that it's not the whole truth. I mean, do you see things that way? Or does that, are, they, are they completely outside the globe, mired in total darkness? I do see things that way, right? I intended that. It's a vice, I think, I mean, to which I, I, I can fall, into which I can fall to see them as my opponents. But I think it's rather that they have something right and that the problem for all of us is to get the pieces back together. Something I love about Aristotle, who's one of the philosophers that I you know, love best, is that this seems to be the way that he thinks. Like every book of his begins with a review of what he calls the endoxa, the received opinions. And however strange they might be, and many of them are very strange, the soul is a moving number, is one. Nevertheless, they, they never turn out to be completely false, right? They turn out to be some glimpse, some partial glimpse of philosophical truth, which has to be integrated by Aristotle. And I suppose, I mean, you know, were I as great a philosopher as Aristotle, that would be my role as, as things stand. Maybe my role is to stand up for a bit of the whole, but I guess I do believe that, you know, it's not an accident that people are saying the things that seem necessary to oppose to me and that there has to be some place for them. I mean, this may be too difficult and too deeply philosophical a question to ask in a podcast like this, but if you were asked to formulate what it is that the philosophers who take this sort of external, critical, skeptical perspective on our self-conception are getting right, is there a formula for that? Well, I mean, I, I'm worried that I'm going to wander all over the place here. I mean, I, I think to go to the completely other end of the history of philosophy, there's some nice terminology from Sartre, another philosopher I like. He distinguishes between two aspects of human being, one of which he calls transcendence and the other facticity. And these are, he thinks, essentially two aspects of what, what it is for us to exist in the world. The transcendent aspect is the aspect in which we from the inside, shape our lives by thinking about the world. And the factical aspect is the aspect that anyone can study from a onlooker's point of view or a spectator's point of view, and where a kind of form of explanation applies that doesn't refer essentially to the consciousness of the person in question. And I think of the you know, view that I it's not my calling to defend as, as, as some attempt to get hold of that factical aspect of human beings. And I think it must be true that there's a soundness in the thought that we can be thought of from that angle and that the only problem arises when it seems to uh, rule out the the other angle, the one, the one that seems more central to my own perspective. I guess that the shattered globe theory also connects with the second question I was going to ask, which is one I've asked several philosophers, which is whether you really believe your philosophical views. And, and I suppose the part of the connection is if you're already thinking of the typical philosopher 
as having a kind of partial grasp of something that they're trying to put together, what attitude should one take to one's efforts to do that? Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you've asked me this question. I listened to a bunch of podcasts from your, your first season, which I greatly enjoyed. And this question particularly got my goat. I was very interested by what people had to say about it, but I thought that often they were too concessive of the premise of the question, so to speak. The premise of the question being that the quote unquote views that you hold in philosophy are things that you believe. You know, when I hear the question, I mean, the first thing I'm tempted to say, I guess, is of course I believe my philosophical views, not to do that would be sophistry. But, uh, you know, if I think about it a bit more, I guess I think that what I care about most in philosophy is not a matter of belief, but maybe the, the relevant notion is something more like understanding. I don't know. I've heard people say in philosophy things like, you know, I'm interested in skepticism. I really want to know. I mean, if, if it's true that the world outside my mind doesn't exist, I want to figure that out. And that attitude has never made sense to me. You know, it seems to me, I, I, not, not spoiler alert or something, but the, the world outside your mind exists. Other people have minds too. Not everything in the world has a mind. Panpsychism is false. These are things a child knows, right? And uh, we are not going to go into our offices and disprove the child. But our task is different. It's, it's, not, it's not to advocate for one of these strange positions that we're tempted into, but rather to put back together the thing that the child finds obvious. And it's, very, it's not easy to do that. And there's real advance in understanding and trying to do it and trying to understand what you know, a child would find obvious. Anyway, I mean, that doesn't describe the whole of philosophy. There's lots of, you know, philosophy of physics and other things that uh, I, where I think this doesn't apply, but there's certain basic aspects of philosophy, I suppose, that, that I think of like that. They're, they're not things where the right way to think of it is I have a certain belief opposed to other beliefs, but I'm trying to figure out how to put back together the shattered shards of some things that ought to fit, but that I can't figure out how to fit. I guess there are two follow-ups that seem interesting to pursue here, among others. And I'm ask, I'm going to ask both follow-up questions, and you can pick which one, if either you, you find helpful. So one is whether philosophy understood that way always begins with a problem. So the, the shattering is always the starting point for philosophy. And if it weren't for the shattering, there just wouldn't be a need for philosophy. And I guess the other follow-up question is how to think about understanding. So what, what understanding is if it's not just a matter of having a bunch of extra beliefs about whatever particular philosophical topic we're grappling with? Well, I mean, they're both good questions. I suspect, I mean, whatever, I, you, you've gotten me to say things by asking these damned questions that go far beyond what I'm really in a position responsibly to say. I, uh, I, I suppose I think that, yeah, I, well, about your first question, I am tempted to say that good philosophy should begin that way. It certainly is my experience that in my own case, the best philosophical work comes with a clear difficulty in view, but I'm not sure I understand why that is true. I mean, I, I feel like 
one of the striking things about philosophy is that we who do it, although we can recognize it done well and done poorly, have relatively little understanding of what as a whole it is. Um, at least that's my own experience. And then about the question of, of understanding and what that could consist in, I, mean, I suppose I think that the understanding will consist in things like introducing concepts uh, for crucial notions, drawing distinctions, and thereby removing apparent conflicts that seem to force us to say things like the external world doesn't exist, all I know is my own mind, or can never know that another person has consciousness as I do, or something like that, right? I think that we should come back to some things that everyone would admit, but we should come back to it with understanding. And that understanding will arise in virtue of the distinctions and other things that we introduce along the way. Well, this, I think, is trespassing a little bit on the next question. So I think I'm going to just connect this to question three, which is, do you think there's progress in philosophy? And given what you said about the, the nature of philosophy or the parts or style of philosophy that you're engaged in, what form would progress take? Right. Uh, yeah. We, so I should say, I mean, you give, you give your guests some degree of freedom in choosing some of the questions that they're asked. And I also chose this one. And now I realize I've, I, I've just set myself up to pontificate about philosophy for a good part of the podcast. That, that's, why, that's why people this. listen to that. That's, <laughs> that's the, main, the main selling, the unique selling point of the podcast is uh, people will pontificate in ways that they wouldn't do in actual publications. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, I, I, so about progress, I mean, again, I think that the, kind of the premise of the question ought to be queried, that we ought to think about, you know, what we mean by progress with respect to philosophy or whether that's the relevant notion. I mean, as, as everybody knows, I guess, I mean, philosophy has a funny relation to its own history, right? It keeps with it these texts that have belonged to it from the beginning. It's talks about the same problems that they raise often, right? The, the very problems that Aristotle was talking about, we come back to in our own different way. It often treats the texts rather unhistorically, right? As if, you know, they weren't written long ago in a distant culture, but as if they're addressing the same question that we are thinking about now. And, you know, the most strange of all, it, it, there's a certain way in which it seems not to move forward. It seems to kind of circle around at least some of the same problems over and over again, right? And everybody's writing about skepticism or any of the other kind of core philosophical topics, what, what they're fundamentally is, et cetera. And that, that's sometimes treated as a criticism of, of the discipline, right? That, you know, what kind, of a, what kind of a domain of human knowledge would do this? I don't find it to be that, but I, I think, you know, not finding it to be that requires thinking about what philosophy is. I mean, I think, you know, if there were aspects of our predicament as human beings that were permanent, uh, as I suspect there are, uh, you know, that we have to figure out how to live, that we die and have to come to terms with that, that we have to figure out somehow what the world is insofar as we can engage with it, that those are going to be permanent topics and that what's going to shift is not that we have to confront them, but the context of thoughts and concepts and presumptions in which we confront them. 
And each generation of us are gonna have to figure out our answers for ourselves. And that's the whole point of philosophy. And so I, I guess in that sense, I mean, I, I, I think, I think there's accomplishment in philosophy. I, 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 progress, I, I don't, I don't know about. I mean, there's certainly things that philosophy casts off that are of great interest. I was a year or so ago. I was taking a class on linguistic semantics, and a huge amount of that discipline was first formulated by philosophers, um, and is wonderful. It's just glorious intellectual material. So, I mean, in that sense, I mean, we cast off useful stuff, I suppose, but sometimes. But at its core, I think we're, we're, we're we are you know like like you know flies or with, with a buzzing around the the bright light or something. We're 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 trying to understand one fundamental thing. Well, it's interesting that you say cast off because I was going to ask what you make of the counter narrative to the one you told on which, at least through the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution, philosophy didn't just cast off but sort of crystallized in the natural sciences as we understand them now and in economics and in psychology. And then, as you say, later in linguistics, but also in computer science. I mean, I suppose one way to think of that is in the midst of these profound reflections, some things of practical import sort of popped up and how convenient and how how nice that is. But there is another way of telling that story. Uh, I mean, that was a parody of your way of telling it. But the, the other way of telling it would be, yeah, philosophy made progress. It's just that the bits where it made progress cease to count as philosophy. So philosophy never gets to take the credit. But going forward, we should anticipate, or at least hope, that there will be further castings off of that kind. And they won't be accidents. They'll be the main attraction. Yeah, I, I've heard that said. I mean, that's, that strikes me as an honorable view. I mean, I, again, I feel in a certain way out of my depth in talking about this. But I, I suppose I believe, you know, believe, I, I emphasize that. I mean, I, 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 I don't know. But, I, you know, I, I guess I, 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 I'm inclined to think that there is some kind of properly philosophical impulse in human reason or something, that, 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 that it's characteristic of us to be able to think, to think, uh, and, and that uh, although there are lots of things to think about, there's one thing that is somehow thinking just as for thinking's sake, and that that defines its own domain. And it's, it's true, maybe true as a historical fact that the term philosophy has comprehended a lot else, and that some of that other stuff has started out in a kind of amorphous state and eventually solidified into particular sciences. And I mean, I, I don't have proprietary ownership of the word philosophy by any means. But I, I am disinclined to accept the picture on which the thing that I think of as the core is just continuous with the science of psychology, the science of physics, or whatever, these these supposedly these elements that have emerged from philosophy. That's what I think. Well, I want to ask a question now that is more about your life as a philosopher than your philosophical views. But I think the way you think about philosophy, there may be less distance between those two than there is for some people. But anyway, the question is, question four, who was your most inspiring teacher? Right. Uh, yeah, when I got this question, I mean, I, I thought back over many philosophical teachers. And it, I mean, there are 
I, you know, I could go on and on about them, but there are too many to go on about. And what I have to say about them is too overwhelming. So I thought I wouldn't, I wouldn't even try to talk about that. But it, it occurred to me that a lot of the learning I've done in philosophy feels like it's taken place in the context of friendships and that in a way, you know, some friends have, have taught me a lot and inspired me in philosophy. And I, I thought I would, if, if it's okay, I thought I would mention two of them. That's all right. Sure. Yeah. Well, so uh, I, there are two people. Uh, one, uh, a person I knew in high school, uh, it was a couple of years older than me, Jeff Seidman, who's now a oh, yeah. professor of philosophy at, at Vassar yeah. College. And he was older than me. Uh, he was a junior in high school and I was a freshman. Um, we were on the debate team together. And somehow, you know, he was an intellectual in high school and he had the idea that we should both become philosophers. And he went to St. John's, the kind of great books program, and he wanted me to come there. He wanted us to study the great philosophical works and become philosophers. And, you know, I I, I, I very much cared for and respected him, but but once he graduated, I felt like, oh my God, I've gotta I've gotta be my own person. I've got to resist this. I can't do what he thinks is the best way for me to leave leave my life. So I didn't go to college where he wanted me to go to college. I didn't study philosophy. And I held out as long as I could. And, and then eventually I gave in and became a philosopher, um, got interested in philosophy. And so it's a kind of an uninspiring story of coming to philosophy. Like some people, you know, they had philosophical thoughts as children or whatever. In my case, it was that a friend wanted me to be this and I resisted as long as I could. And then I capitulated. But he nevertheless, I mean, he was a very inspiring person for me because he had the idea of the life of the mind, and he was the first to introduce it to me. I mean, the, the I, you know, I grew up in Ohio. There was, I don't know that there was, you know, that many models of the life of the mind. I mean, we had the idea of going to Paris and being a writer and drinking a lot or something like that. But the idea that you could be Susan Sontag and kind of grab a book by the lapels and shake the truth out of it. I, I don't know that I would have come across that if it hadn't been for him. And that really made a difference to me, just that that thought, that thought about what you could do with your mind. And then I, one other person I would mention, uh, in graduate school, I, I was uh, friends with a guy called Doug Lavin. I've, I'm still friends with a guy called Doug Lavin, who teaches at uh, University College London now. And he really had a huge impact on me. Conversation with him had a huge impact on me. And it was a different different kind of impact. I was at a different point in my you know own development. But I, I think before he came along, I was something like a philosopher of common sense or something. And as as you can see from my uh, responses earlier, uh, you know, in, in a way that some of that persists. You know, I, I I had this tendency, I think, to kind of respond to philosophical difficulties by you know kind of nothing to see here, move along kind of response. That was my 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 tendency to, to to try to erase them, and he uh, had a huge impact on me by getting me to feel the puzzlement of philosophy more intensely. It's just something he was especially great at, just some way of lingering on a question and formulating what seems strange was a really special skill that he had, and it really transformed, uh, you know, and I, 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 I don't think it would have been worthwhile to, to do the other thing uh, for, for a life in philosophy. I'm really glad uh, for that effect. Anyway, so those are, those are two inspiring teachers. 
Well, uh, uh, this is a good occasion to say thanks, Jeff, for uh, <laughs> nudging Matt into philosophy. So I, I want to ask a, a final fifth question that, knowing you, I, I hope will be deeply resonant, which is about fear. So Murdoch says, it's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher. What is he afraid of? So the question is, what are you afraid of? Yeah, th- th- I mean, this is an interesting question. I mean, I re- I've heard you ask it before. Um, and I, I mean, I agree with uh, other guests uh, who've said this, that surely Murdoch can't have meant this is a question that you ask to the person in question. It, it mustn't be that she was thinking that that the person to find out from who wh- what this guy is afraid of is this guy. But nevertheless, uh, we're, we're friends. I'll, I'll try to play along. Um, I mean... You know, I, I take it that we're talking about fears that are pertinent to philosophy. I mean, I have all the usual fears, I suppose. But, you know, I, I take it that Murdoch's idea must have been that, you know, philosophy is a little bit like a, you know, a fetish or something. You know, that people say about a, a, a sexual fetish that it, the, 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 the true form of it is, you know, look at this, don't look at that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe our one's philosophy is, maybe she was thinking that one's philosophy is, a kind of great buildup around one thing to the exclusion of something else that one is trying to keep out of view. But anyway, I mean, I, you know, if I had to, if I had to say about myself, uh, interpreting it in that way, I guess I would say, you know, the, the view of a human being that feels like a kind of core thing worth defending to me is, you know, the idea that human beings are rational animals, that they're capable of understanding themselves. Etc. And I don't know that I'm so much afraid that that's untrue. I think in a way it's too wonderful an idea to be totally untrue. But I, I, I wonder whether I have any real intellectual right to speak in its defense. Sometimes, I mean, I, I can't help thinking. I mean, we're we're recording this a couple of days after a kind of mob stormed the U.S. Capitol and went berserk. I don't have anything original to say about the matter, really, except that it makes one think that, you know, optimistic views of human beings and human history have a lot that speaks against them. And I suppose I do nevertheless believe that reason is our proper nature and, you know, is the kind of thing that will ultimately drive us if we give ourselves the time to be driven in a good direction. But it it can feel hard to believe at times, and certainly it can feel hard to believe that I am in a position to do anything more than wish that that's true, that I'm in a position to argue that that's true. Well, this may not make it into the podcast, but I'm, I'm going to respond to the challenge that the the uh, question shouldn't be asked to the person, but, but addressed by someone observing them to say, thinking back to the shattered globe theory, if you were asked, what would someone who propounds that theory of philosophy seem to be afraid of? I mean, one thing you might say is, the idea that everyone is onto some part of the truth is a way of thinking about philosophy on which there isn't fundamental conflict or disagreement. No one is really completely wrong or misguided. So that there's no one of whom one can say, yeah, those philosophers are just completely against the truth. So do you think there's a, a fear of fundamental disagreement or fundamental exclusion that might be working there? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's probably right. That there's an idea to uh, wish to kind of integrate 
different aspects of the truth. I mean, I, I'll confess. I mean, I, I come from a you know religiously mixed household. My mother grew up Jewish and my father Catholic. Um, and I mean, I don't know whether the religion is the central thing, but anyway, they're they're quite different people in their kind of dispositions toward the world and toward life. And they've had a wonderful marriage, but the, you know, it's different views of the world coming together. And, uh, you know, I, who am the child of that, kind of want to make it all work. And uh, I suppose, uh, you know, that something like that operates in my view of philosophy. Although, I, right, I, my view of philosophy is true, Kieran. I, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I, I've told you it because I wanted to let you know. I, that is a, a coincidence for which I'm very, very grateful. And uh, it's been great to uh, have you here to share the truth with me and any anyone who's listening. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Matt Boyle is professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago and the author of a forthcoming book, Transparency and Reflection. Thank you for listening to Five Questions. Five Questions.